Section 13 of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Section 13 letters from 1880 part three fort mcginnis montana territory september 1880 there is a large village of cree indians in the valley below and for several days they were a great nuisance in the garrison one bright morning it was discovered that a long line of them had left their tepees and were coming in this direction they were riding single file of course and were chanting and beating tom-toms in a way that made one's blood feel frozen i was out on one of the little hills at the time riding betty and happened to be about the first to see them i started for the post at once at a fast gait and told faye and colonel palmer about them but as soon as it was seen that they were actually coming to the post i rode out again about as fast as i had come in and went to a bit of high ground where i could command a view of the camp and at the same time be screened by bushes and rocks and there i remained until those savages were well on their way back to their own village then i went in and was laughed at by everyone and assured by some that i had missed a wonderful sight the crees are canadian indians and are here for a hunt by permission of both governments they and the sioux are very hostile to each other therefore when four or five sioux swooped down upon them a few days ago and drove off twenty of their ponies the crees were frantic it was an insult not to be put up with so some of their best young warriors were sent after them they recaptured the ponies and killed one sioux now an indian is shrewd and wily the sioux had been a thief therefore the crees cut off his right hand fastened it to a long pole with the fingers pointing up and with much fuss and feathers particularly feathers, brought it to the white chief to show him that the good brave Crees had killed one of the white men's enemies. The leading Indian carried the pole with the hand, and almost every one of those that followed carried something else, pieces of flags or old tin pans or buckets upon which they beat with sticks, making horrible noises. Each Indian was chanting in a sing-song mournful way. They were dressed most fancifully, some with red coats, probably discarded by the Canadian police, and Faye said that almost every one had on quantities of beads and feathers. Bringing the hand of a dead Sioux was only an Indian's way of begging for something to eat, and this Colonel Palmer understood. So great tins of hot coffee and boxes of hardtack were served to them. Then they danced and danced, and to me it looked as though they intended to dance the rest of their lives right on that one spot but when they saw that any amount of furious dancing would not boil more coffee they stopped and finally started back to their village faye tells me that as he was going to his tent from the dancing he noticed an indian who seemed to be unusually well clad his moccasins and leggings were embroidered with beads and he was wrapped in a bright red blanket head as well as body as he passed him a voice said in the purest english lieutenant can you give me a sear spring for my rifle? The only human being near was that Indian, 
wrapped closely in a blanket with only his eyes showing, precisely as one would expect to see a hostile dressed. Faye said that it gave him the queerest kind of a sensation, as though the voice had come from another world. He asked the Indian where he had learned such good English and technical knowledge of guns, and he said at the Carlisle School. He said also that he was a Pegan and on a visit to some Cree friends. This was one of the many proofs that we have had that no matter how good an education the Indian may receive, he will return to his blanket and out of the pot way of living just as soon as he returns to his people. It would be foolish to expect anything different. But those Cree Indians, the coffee had been good, very good, and they wanted more. So the very next morning they brought to Colonel Palmer an old dried scalp lock, scalp of White Chief's enemy, with the same ceremony as they had brought the hand. Then they sat around his tent and watched him, giving little grunts now and then until in desperation he ordered coffee for them, after which they danced. The men gave them bits of tobacco, too. Well, they kept this performance up three or four days, each day bringing something to Colonel Palmer to make him think they had killed a Sioux. This became very tiresome. Besides, the soldiers were being robbed of coffee. So Colonel Palmer shut himself in his tent and refused to see them one day, and an orderly told them to go away and make no noise. They finally left the post looking very mournful, the men said. I told Colonel Palmer that he might better have gone out on the hills, as I did, that it was ever so much nicer than being shut up in a tent. Betty is learning to rear higher and higher, and I ride Pete now. The last time I rode her she went up so straight that I slipped back in my saddle, and some of the enlisted men ran out to my assistance. I let her have her own way, and came back to the tent, and, jumping down, declared to Faye that I would never ride her again. She is very cute in her badness, and having once discovered that I didn't like a rearing horse, she has proceeded to rear whenever she wanted her own way. I have enjoyed riding her because she is so graceful and dainty, but I have been told so many times that the horse was dangerous and would throw me that perhaps I have become a little nervous about her. A detail of soldiers goes up in the mountains twice every day for poles with which to make the roofs of the log quarters. They go along a trail on the other side of the creek, and on this side is a narrow deer path that runs around the rocky side of a small mountain. Ever since I have been here I have wanted to go back of the mountain by that path. So when I happened to be out on Pete yesterday afternoon, at the time the men started, I at once decided to take advantage of their protection and ride around the little mountain. About half a mile up there were quantities of bushes, eight and ten feet high, down to the creek bed, and the narrow trail that Pete was on was about on a level with the tops of the bushes. At my left the hill was very steep and covered with stones. I was having a delightful time, feeling perfectly safe with so many soldiers within call, but suddenly things changed. Down in those bushes there was a loud crashing and snapping, and then straight up into the air jumped a splendid deer. His head and most of his neck were above the bushes, and for just one instant he looked at us with big, inquisitive eyes before he went down again. When the deer went up, Pete went up too, on the steep hill. 
and as I was on his back I had to go with him. The horse was badly frightened, snorted, and raised his tail high, and when I tried to get him down on the trail, the higher up he went on the rolling stones. I could almost touch the side of the mountain with my whip in places. It was so steep. It was a most dangerous position to be in, and just what elevation I might have been carried to eventually I do not know, had not the deer stopped his crashing through the bushes and bounded up on the opposite bank, directly in front of the first team of mules, and then on he streaked it across a plateau and far up a mountainside, his short white tail showing distinctly as he ran. With the deer, Pete seemed to think that the evil one had gone too, and consented to return to the trail and to cross the stream over to the wagons. The corporal had stopped the wagons until he saw that I was safely down, and I asked him why he had not killed the deer. We are always in need of game, and he said that he had not seen him until he was in front of the mules, and that it was impossible then, as the deer did not wait for them to get the rifles out of their cases on the bottom of the wagons. That evening at the whist table I told Colonel Palmer about the deer and Pete, and saw at once that I had probably gotten the poor corporal in trouble. Colonel Palmer was very angry that the men should even think of going several miles from the post in an Indian country with their rifles cased and strapped, so they would have been practically useless in case of an attack. Faye says that the men were not thinking of Indians, but simply trying to keep their rifles from being marred and scratched, for if they did get so they would be jumped at the first inspection. Colonel Palmer gave most positive orders for the soldiers to hold their rifles in their hands on their way to and from the mountains, which perhaps is for the best, but I am afraid they will blame me for such orders having been issued. End of letter Fort McGinnis, Montana Territory, October 1880. It is not surprising that politicians got a military post established here, so this wonderful country could be opened and settled, for the country itself is not only beautiful, but it has an amount of game every place that is almost beyond belief. Deer are frequently seen to come down from the mountains to the creek for water, and prairie chicken would come to our very tents, I fancy, if left to follow their inclinations. Faye is officer of the day every third day, but the other two days there is not much for him to do, as the company is now working on the new quarters under the supervision of the quartermaster. So we often go off on little hunts, usually for chicken, but sometimes we go up on one of the mountains where there are quantities of ruffed grouse. These are delicious, with meat as tender and white as young chicken, and they are so pretty too when they spread the ruffs around their necks and make fans of their short tail feathers. Yesterday we went out for birds for both tables, the officers' mess and our own. The other officers are not hunters, and Faye is the possessor of the only shotgun in the garrison. Therefore it has been a great pleasure to us to bring in game for all. Faye rides Betty now altogether, so I was on Pete yesterday. We had quite a number of chickens, but thought we would like to get two or three more. Therefore, when we saw a small covey fly over by some bushes, and that one bird went beyond and dropped on the other side, Faye told me to go on a little and watch the bird if it rose again, when he shot at the others. It is our habit usually for me to hold Faye's horse when he dismounts to hunt, 
but that time he was some distance away, and had slipped his hand through the bridle rein, and was leading Betty that way. Both horses are perfectly broken to firearms, and do not in the least mind a gun. I have often seen Betty prick up her ears and watch the smoke come from the barrel with the greatest interest. Everything went on very well until I got where I might expect to see the chicken, and then I presume I gave more thought to the bird than to the ground the horse was on. At all events, it suddenly occurred to me that the grass about us was very tall, and looking down closely, I discovered that Pete was in an alkali bog and slowly going down. I at once tried to get him back to the ground we had just left, but in his frantic efforts to get his feet out of the sticky mud, he got further to one side and slipped down into an alkali hole of nasty black water and slime. That I knew to be exceedingly dangerous, and I urged the horse, by voice and whip, to get him out before he sank down too deep. But with all his efforts he could do nothing, and was going down very fast and groaning in his terror. Seeing that I must have assistance without delay, I called to Faye to come at once, and sat very still until he got to us, fearing that if I changed my position the horse might fall over. Faye came running, and finding a tuft of grass and solid ground to stand upon, pulled Pete by the bridle and encouraged him until the poor beast finally struggled out, his legs and stomach covered with the black slime up to the flaps of my saddle, so one can see what danger we were in. There was no way of relieving the horse of my weight, as it was impossible for me to jump and not get stuck in the mud myself. This is the only alkali hole we have discovered here. It is screened by bunches of tall grass, and I expect that many a time I have ridden within a few feet of it when alone, and if my horse had happened to slip down on any one of these times, we probably would have been sucked from the face of the earth, and not one person to come to our assistance or to know what had happened to us. When Faye heard my call of distress, he threw the bridle back on Betty, and, slipping the shotgun through the sling on the saddle, hurried over to me, not giving Betty much thought. The horse has always shown the greatest disinclination to leaving Pete, but, having her own free will that time, she did the unexpected, and trotted to a herd of mules not far off, and, as she went down a little hill, the precious shotgun slipped out of the sling to the ground, and the stock broke. The gun is perfectly useless, and the loss of it is great to us and our friends. To be in this splendid game country without a shotgun is deplorable. Still, to have been buried in a hole of black water and muck would have been worse. Later, such an awful windstorm burst upon us while I was riding two days ago, I was obliged to stop. The day was cold, and our tents were closed tight to keep the heat in so we knew nothing of the storm until it struck us, and with such fierceness it seemed as if the tents must go down. Instantly there was commotion in camp, some of the men tightening guy ropes and others running after blankets and pieces of clothing that had been out for an airing, but every man laughed and made fun of whatever he was doing. Soldiers are always so cheerful under such difficulties, and I dearly love to hear them laugh and yell, too, over in their tents. The snow fell thick and fast, and the wind came through the canyon back of us with the velocity of a hurricane. As night came on, it seemed to increase, 
and the tents began to show the strain, and one or two had gone down, so the officers' families were moved into the unfinished log quarters for the night. Colonel Palmer sent for me to go over also, and Major Bagley came twice for me, saying our tents would certainly fall, and that it would be better to go then than in the middle of the night. But I had more faith in those tents, for they were new and pitched remarkably well. Soon after we got here, long poles had been put up on stakes all around each side of and close to the tents, and to these the guy ropes of both tents and fly covers had been securely fastened, all of which had prevented much flopping of canvas. Dirt had been banked all around the base of the tents, so with a very little fire we could be warm and fairly comfortable. The wind seemed to get worse every minute, and once in a while there would be a loud boom when a big Sibley tent would be ripped open, and then would come yells from the men as they scrambled after their belongings. After it became dark it seemed dismal, but Faye would not go in a building, and I would not leave him alone to hold the stove down. This was our only care and annoyance. It was intensely cold, and in order to have a fire we were compelled to hold the pipe down on the little conical camp stove, for with the flopping of the tent and fly the pipe was in constant motion. Faye would hold it for a while, then I would relieve him, and so on. The holding down business was very funny for an hour or two, but in time it became monotonous. We got through the night very well, but did not sleep much. The tearing and snapping of tents and the shouting of the men when a tent would fall upon them was heard frequently, and when we looked out in the morning, the camp had the appearance of having been struck by a cyclone. Two-thirds of the tents were flat on the ground, others were badly torn, and the unfinished log quarters only added to the desolation. Snow was over everything ten or twelve inches deep. But the wind had gone down, and the atmosphere was wonderfully clear and sparkling, and full of frost. Dinner the evening before had not been a success, so we were very prompt to the nice hot breakfast Charlie gave us. That Chinaman has certainly been a great comfort on this trip. The doctor came over looking cross and sick. He said at once that we had been wise in remaining in our comfortable tents, that everybody in the log houses was sneezing and complaining of stiff joints. The logs have not been chinked yet, and, as might have been expected, wind and snow swept through them. The stoves have not been set up, so even one fire was impossible. Two or three of their tents did go down, however, the doctors included, and perhaps they were safer in a breezy house after all. The mail has been held back and will start with us. The time of going was determined at department headquarters, and we will have to leave here on the first day after tomorrow, if such a thing is possible. We return by the way of Benton. It is perfectly exasperating to see prairie chicken all around us on the snow. Early this morning there was a large covey up in a tree just across the creek from our tent, looking over at us in a most insolent manner. They acted as though they knew there was not a shotgun within a hundred miles of them. They were perfectly safe, for everyone was too nearly frozen to trouble them with a rifle. Camping on the snow will not be pleasant, and we regret very much that the storm came just at this time. Charlie is busy cooking all sorts of things for the trip, so he will not have much to do on the little camp stove. He is a treasure, 
but says that he wishes we could stay here, that he does not want to return to Fort Shaw. This puzzles me very much, as there are so many Chinamen at Shaw, and not one here. The doctor will not go back with us, as he has received orders to remain at this post during the winter. End of letter. Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, November 1880. The past few days have been busy ones. The house has received much needed attention, and camp things have been looked over and put away, ready for the next move. The trip back was a disappointment to me, and not at all pleasant. The wagons were very lightly loaded, so the men rode in them all the way, and we came about forty miles each day, the mules keeping up a steady, slow trot. Of course I could not ride those distances at that gait, therefore I was compelled to come in the old jerky ambulance. The snow was still deep when we left McGinnis, and at the first camp snow had to be swept from the ground where our tent was pitched, but after that the weather was warm and sunny. We saw the greatest number of feathered game, enormous flocks of geese, brant, and ducks. Our camp one night was near a small lake just the other side of Benton, and at dusk hundreds of geese came and lit on the water until it looked like one big mass of live, restless things, and the noise was deafening. Some of the men shot at them with rifles, but the geese did not seem to mind much. Charlie told me at McGinnis that he did not want to return to Shaw, and I wondered at that so many times. I went in the kitchen two miserable mornings back and found him sitting down looking unhappy and disconsolate. I do not remember to have ever seen a Chinaman sitting down that way before, and was afraid he might be sick. But he said at once, and without preamble, me go way. He saw my look of surprise and said again, me go way, me see Bok's Chinese man telling me, go way. I said, but Charlie, Lee has no right to tell you to go. I want you to stay. He hesitated one second and then said in the most mournful of voices, Yes, me know, me feel very bad, but Lee, he telling me, go. He no likey mason man. No amount of persuasion could induce him to stay, and that evening, after dinner, he packed his bedding on his back and went away, to the crossing, I presume. Charlie called himself a mason, and has a book that he made himself, which he says was a mason man book. But I learned yesterday that he is a highbinder, no mason at all, and for that reason the Chinamen in the garrison would not permit him to remain here. They were afraid of him, yet he seems so very trustworthy in every way. But a highbinder in one's own house? There has been another departure from the family. Betty has been sold. Lieutenant Warren wanted her to match a horse he had recently bought. The two make a beautiful little team, and Betty is already a great pet, and I am glad of that, of course, but I do not see the necessity of Lieutenant Warren's giving her sugar right in front of our windows. His quarters are near ours. He says that Betty made no objections to the harness, but drove right off with her mate. There was a distressing occurrence in the garrison yesterday that I cannot forget, at all army posts the prisoners do the rough work, such as bringing the wood and water, keeping the yards tidy, bringing the ice, and so on. Yesterday morning one of the general prisoners here escaped from the sentry guarding him. The long roll was beaten, 
and as this always means that something is wrong and calls out all the troops, officers, and men, I ran out on the porch to see what was the matter, fearing there might be a fire someplace. It seemed a long time before the companies got in line, and then I noticed that instead of fire buckets they were carrying rifles. Directly every company started off on double time and disappeared in between two sets of barracks at one corner of the parade ground. Then everything was unusually quiet, not a human being to be seen except the sentry at the guardhouse, who was walking post. It was pleasant, so I sat down, still feeling curious about the trouble that was serious enough to call out all the troops. It was not so very long before Lieutenant Todd, who was officer of the day, came from the direction the companies had gone, pistol in hand, and in front of him was a man with ball and chain. That means that his feet were fastened together by a large chain, just long enough to permit him to take short steps, and to that short chain was riveted a long one, at the end of which was a heavy iron ball hanging below his belt. When we see a prisoner carrying a ball and chain, we know that he is a deserter, or that he has done something very bad, which will probably send him to the penitentiary, for these balls are never put on a prisoner who has only a short time in the guardhouse. The prisoner yesterday, who seemed to be a young man, walked slowly to the guardhouse, the officer of the day following closely. Going up the steps and on in the room to a cot, he unfastened the ball from his belt and let it thunder down on the floor, and then, throwing himself down on the cot, buried his face in the blankets, an awful picture of woe and despair. On the walk by the door, and looking at him with contempt, stood a splendid specimen of manhood, erect, broad-chested, with clear, honest eyes and a weather-beaten face, a typical soldier of the United States Army, and, such as he, the prisoner inside, might have become in time. Our house is separated from the guardhouse by a little park only, and I could plainly see the whole thing, the strong man and the weakling. In the meantime, Bugles had called the men back to quarters, and very soon I learned all about the wretched affair. The misguided young man had deserted once before, was found guilty by a general court-martial, and sentenced to the penitentiary at Leavenworth for the regulation time for such an offense and to-morrow morning he was to have started for the prison. Now he has to stand a second court-martial and serve a double sentence for desertion. He was so silly about it, too. The prisoners were at the large ice-house down by the river, getting ice out for the daily delivery. There were sentinels over them, of course, but in some way that man managed to sneak over the ice through the long building to an open door, through which he dropped down to the ground and— then he ran. He was missed almost instantly, and the alarm given, but the companies were sent to the lowland along the river where there are bushes, for there seemed to be no other place where he could possibly secrete himself. The officer of the day is responsible, in a way, for the prisoners, so of course Lieutenant Todd went to the ice-house to find out the cause of the trouble, and on his way back he accidentally passed an old barrel-shaped water-wagon, not a sound was heard, but something told him to look inside. He had to climb up on a wheel in order to get high enough to look through the little square opening at the top. But he is a tall man and could just see in, 
and peering down he saw the wretched prisoner huddled at one end looking more like an animal than a human being he ordered him to come out and marched him to the guardhouse it was a strange coincidence but the officer of the day happened to have been promoted from the ranks had served his three years as an enlisted man and then passed a stiff examination for a commission one could see by his walk that he had no sympathy for the mother's baby he knew from experience that a soldier's life is not hard unless the soldier himself makes it so the service and discipline develop all the good qualities of the man give him an assurance and manly courage he might never possess otherwise and best of all he learns to respect law and order the army is not a rough place and neither are the men starved or abused as many mothers seem to think often the company commanders receive the most pitiful letters from mothers of enlisted men beseeching them to send their boys back to them that they are being treated like dogs dying of starvation and so on as though those company commanders did not know all about those boys and the life they had to live it is such a pity that these mothers cannot be made to realize that army discipline regular hours and plain army food is just what those boys need to make men of them judging by several letters i have read sent to officers by mothers of soldiers i am inclined to believe that weak mothers in many cases are responsible for the desertion of their weak sons they sap all the manhood from them by coddling as they grow up and send them out in the world wholly unequal to a vigorous life a life without pie and cake at every meal well i had no intention of moralizing this way but i have written only the plain truth end of letter end of section thirteen